Section 2 of An American Vendetta. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Brandon. An American Vendetta. A Story of Barbarism in the United States. By T.C. Crawford. Chapter 2. Getting at the Facts. Every stranger is suspected and regarded as a detective in disguise. To get at the story of the feud I found was very difficult. The mountaineers talk in the most rambling way. They are the most suspicious people upon the face of the earth. Every one who visits that region who is not a land speculator or a drummer is regarded as a detective. I had been fully advised of this in advance and was fortunate enough to secure for my companion, John B. Floyd, the Assistant Secretary of State, who knows these people thoroughly. They all have confidence in him, and it was through his influence that I was enabled to get at these people and to see the Hatfields, men who have never been reached by a newspaper correspondent, where murder is considered creditable. During the course of my investigation, I was enabled to visit the home of Ants Hatfield, commonly known as Devil Ants, to pass the lines of his centuries and hold an interview with this redoubtable outlaw, who now with a large reward upon his head has built himself a fort in the mountains, where he intends to sell out his life at the dearest possible price, rather than surrender to officers of the law. In order to fully understand the atmosphere in which such a vendetta could possibly be carried on, it is necessary to look outside of the families of the Hatfields and the McCoys. Coming gradually to this place, I had opportunities of talking with numerous citizens of the state, and from them I learned, through many conversations, that it was rare that murder was ever punished in the state and that quarrels were much more commonly settled with the knife or the pistol than in any other way. During the day which I was obliged to wait at Charlestown, I had several distinguished persons pointed out to me as men who had killed their man, and who had not been punished. One genteel, slim-looking young fellow, with a daredevil face and the set-up of an army officer, was pointed out as an especially vindictive and quick killer. He had not very long ago tried to kill an inoffensive barkeeper for the very serious reason that he had not put ginger ale in his whiskey as he had ordered. As the unfortunate barkeeper recovered from this murderous assault, it was not thought worthwhile by the prosecuting attorney to push the case. Only a few weeks ago, one of the colored employees at the hotel, Ruffner, came back to the hotel at three o'clock in the morning. He persisted in coming into the hotel, although it was against the rule to admit employees to the building after a certain hour. The night clerk told him to go away from the front door. The colored man refused to go. The night clerk then told him to go or he would be sorry for it. The obdurate colored man still persisted, 
and then the clerk drew his pistol and promptly killed this black fellow for his impudence. When the night clerk was tried, it was shown that this vindictive black wretch had actually made a movement of his hand towards his hip pocket during the controversy, and as a necessary consequence, the night clerk was acquitted on the ground of self-defense. I asked the gentleman who gave me this information concerning the shooting, what would have been the effect if there had been a colored night clerk and the man who had sought to enter the hotel had been a white man? He said that undoubtedly the verdict of the jury would have been different. There was great excitement among the Negroes after this, and they gathered together one night, resolved to lynch the night clerk. But the whites also rallied, and one of them remarked to me during my visit, we are awfully sorry that those colored people changed their minds about coming down, because we would have reduced the Republican majority in this district by a right smart number if they had only consented to come. I merely give these illustrations to indicate the light way in which the taking of life is regarded among the people of this section. Even outside of the wild and barbarous region, dominated by the Hatfield-McCoy feud. While there may be no more murders committed in proportion to the population than in more civilized states, it is a fact that the murders committed are by men in a different rank in life, and that the pretexts are more often trivial in consequential quarrels than elsewhere. The Hatfield and McCoy families are the two leading mountain families of their region. The Hatfields live on the east side of the Tug River in West Virginia. The McCoys live in Pike County, Kentucky, on the other side of the river. These two families own large tracts of land and are thoroughly well-to-do. Neither of the heads of the families reads nor writes. Some of the children now growing up have the rudiments of an ordinary education. The two families have had very close relations at different times, by marriage and through business relations. During the war, they were organized on both sides of the river, what were known as home guards. These home guards were organized ostensibly for the protection of the property interests of this region against an invading foe, but instead of becoming a real home defense, they invariably followed the practice of robbery and murder and practically led an outlaw life. The Hatfields on one side and the McCoys on the other ranged and plundered, and as a necessary consequence, their interests often clashed. So the first quarrel began as far back as in 1863, when Harmon McCoy was killed by Ants Hatfield. That is to say, common report credits him with the killing. The difficulty of obtaining evidence as to any particular crime is something beyond the power of any ordinary court or commission. The mountaineers are reticent, and even the best people of the community who do not sympathize in any way with crime and who would be delighted if they could be freed from the presence of these outlaws will not furnish a scrap of information 
or give even an opinion which could possibly involve them in some trouble with these domineering outlaws who have so long ruled arbitrarily this region. End of section two. Recording by John Brandon.